0: Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name's Andrew, I'm the preacher here, and I'm really excited that you've decided to worship along with us. Today we continue our series on mountains and the divine encounters that take place there. So far, we've seen how God has encountered Noah on the mountains of Ararat, revealing God's incredible holiness and making a covenantal promise never to flood the earth again. We've seen God encounter Abraham on Mount Moriah, which showed what God desires for faith and foreshadowed our salvation and the sacrifice that brings it about. We've talked about how God encountered Moses on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and how he revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses, the man that he would call to lead his nation. And in that encounter, God revealed his name as Yahweh, Declaring, this name, Yahweh, will be the name that is praised from generation to generation forevermore. And on that same mountain, Mount Sinai, God revealed His law to Moses. Revealed the Ten Commandments. Revealed His law. And the people cried out, we will follow this covenant. We will follow the Lord Yahweh's commands. And then we even talked about Elijah that great prophet who hundreds of years after the giving of the law called fire down from heaven in the name of Yahweh, consuming those who would worship false gods. And it is the power of Yahweh that was revealed. And then last week, we heard about how Elijah, that great prophet, turned it over to Elisha, his protege. And the very first place That Elisha went after receiving the cloak of his mentor and receiving the mantle as prophet of Israel was to head back to Mount Carmel. For we know that the same God of the mountains is also the God of the valley. And what we see today is another glorious mountain And a series of encounters that take place on and around and in the shadow of this mountain that are so, so important. The mountain that we will discuss today is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is not one of the best known mountains in the Bible. Sure, if you're an Old Testament guy, you know about Mount Gerizim and you know what happens there. But there's a lot of us that think, well, Mount Gerizim, I, I, I don't know the immediate biblical story that goes along with this one. And that's all right. That's all right. Because what the story we will discuss today is going to highlight is how the God of the universe, Yahweh, chooses to save us and how he expects us to worship him. Now Mount Gerizim is a beautiful mountain nestled in the northern portion of Israel. Here's another picture and a map. If you look at the map at the very bottom in the middle, you'll see Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is, of course, the capital of modern-day Israel. And at uh, this time, during this map, getting into the time of Christ, we know that Jerusalem is the main, main city. But if you go north of Jerusalem, you enter the region of Samaria. Now, Mount Gerizim is right there in the middle of our picture, right there in the middle of the map, and it's very close to another mountain, Mount Ebal. And when I say close, I mean really close like you can stand on Mount Gerizim and shout over to the guy on Mount Ebal and he hears you in fact this is exactly what God told the people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 11 you see after God had revealed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and after the people had promised to Yahweh that they would follow they didn't they messed up they turned away And they started worshiping false gods. They violated the Ten Commandments immediately. And as punishment, they had to wander for 40 years in the desert, waiting before they could get to the Promised Land. The land that God had promised them generations ago. They had to wait another 40 years. And as Moses was approaching the end, and as the people were getting ready to enter the Promised Land, they made sure to set it up so that they would not make the same mistake. And so God said, here's what we're going to do. I want half the nation to go stand on Mount Gerizim. And I want the other half to go stand on Mount Ebal. And I want all the Levites, all the priests, to stand in the valley of Shechem in between. And what I want you to do is read the word aloud. And every time the Levites get to a portion where God, Yahweh, has promised a blessing, the people on Mount Gerizim would shout out the blessings. And every time the Word talked about what would happen if the people diverted from the covenant, the curses, those on top of Mount Ebal would shout out the curses so that every single person entering the promised land knew exactly What was at stake? But it didn't work. It never works because of our fallen, sinful nature. Ask yourself, have you ever pledged before God Almighty, I'll never do it again, and then you had to go back on that pledge? Have you ever promised that you would, in the name of Jesus, do this or that or stop doing that or the other, and then you went back on that promise. This is, this is not just common to the people of Israel. This is common to people of faith everywhere. Because the standards and expectation that God Almighty, that Yahweh has for us, are so high that we can never meet them ourselves. That is not how we get saved. It is not through our power. It is not through our adherence to his command or to the word that we get saved. And the story of the Bible is the story of God reminding this over and over and over again. Even after the people left Mount Gerizim and left Mount Ebal, and they went into the promised land, and they conquered and received the land that flows with milk and honey, they turned. As we always do. And they fell into the hand of foreign invaders, and God had to raise up judges, and this happened numerous times. And the people shouted out, give us a king like every other country. And Yahweh said, I am your king. And they said, no, we want a guy. We want a human king. And God said, fine, but that's not going to turn out great. They said, just give us a king. Tall, handsome, awesome. He looked a little bit like me. His name was Saul. It started great, but it didn't stay great. It went downhill fast. And then Saul didn't do what God said. And when you don't do what you promise to do, God says, all right, well, then you're out. And so David came along next. He wasn't quite as tall, but God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at what's in the heart. And he was king. and started out great, but it didn't last. And then his boy, Solomon, started out great. He even built the temple. He built the temple. For a long time, God had said, carry me around in a box in the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to show you where to go. And then they went back to Mount Moriah. And Solomon was able to build the temple. The temple where the Holy Spirit lives. The temple where people would make sacrifice. The temple where people would give legitimate worship unto Yahweh. The temple where forgiveness would be rendered unto the people. The temple that the Holy Spirit lives in. Right there. Solomon built it. It didn't end well. The whole nation split after Solomon died. Northern kingdom became Israel. The southern kingdom became Judah. And things were not working out well. And then they got even worse. In the year 722, God was so sick of the shenanigans happening up in Israel. Oh, remember, those shenanigans called fire down to destroy those engaged in the shenanigans. God is not happy at all. Yahweh is displeased with Israel. And so Yahweh raises up The nation of Assyria to come and be his hammer of justice against his wayward nation, Israel. And in the year 722 BC, 700 years before Jesus ever even shows up on earth, God smashes Israel with Assyria and exiles them. All the very best of the Israelites were taken and they were sent to Assyria. And all that was left was the riffraff. But then the Assyrians, because they were really good at knowing how to water down a people... And they figured out the best way to water them down was to water them down like in their blood. So they would take the best ones out and then they would send their people in to intermarry with the riffraff that stayed behind. And this was expressly against the word of God. God said, Don't you dare do that. And so the people of Israel were exiled, sent away, others came in, intermarrying happened, and the nation of Israel decayed even further. And the realm. Of Samaria the same land in which Mount Gerizim resides became a very very different place now don't worry because Judah the southern kingdom they got smashed a little bit later too but it wasn't right away it wasn't into the year 586 when God raised up another nation Babylon and sent King Nebuchadnezzar to smash Jerusalem and he did the same thing he took the very best people of Judah of Jerusalem and took them away But the people didn't have to intermarry. And after a time, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar and after Darius, and after a time, the Jews were allowed to go home, and they said, this will never happen again. And so we are going to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, and we will never let this happen again. Our commitment to monotheism, our commitment to Yahweh, our commitment to his word, our commitment to his temple will never again be violated. And they began work. And oh, it was glorious. Well, their neighbors just to the north, the Samaritans, they said, hey, you guys are rebuilding the temple? That's great. Can we help? And the Jews said, no, absolutely not. Get out of here. They're like, why not? We want to rebuild the temple. And they said, you guys are not true blue Jews anymore. You guys are this half-breed. You're Samaritans now. And the hatred between the Jew and the Samaritan grew. And when I try to describe the hatred between the Jew and Samaritan, there are not very many modern-day analogs. In this country, think back 70 years, think back 100 years, think back to the difficult time in the past of our country where the racial tension between black folks and white folks was even higher. That pales in comparison to the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Think right now, today, about like the the Jewish people and the Arab people, and the Arab people who want to kill and exterminate all of the Jewish people, and now you're getting to the level of animosity between the Jew and the Samaritan. They hated each other with a driving, burning passion, and the number one reason they hated each other was worship. The Jews said, "You intermarried against God's law, and now you want to come back and help rebuild the temple?" No." And the Samaritan said, "You won't let us help rebuild the temple. We're going to build our own temple." And you know where they built their temple on Mount Gerizim. And here are the ruins to this day. They built their own temple with the same design, the same configuration, the same layout, everything. a false, alternative temple. And the irony of ironies is they built it on Mount Blessing, hoping that God would bless them. He did not. God has no patience for false temples. Some of us walk through one in Dan. He has no patience for false worship, as evidenced by the ruins on Mount Gerizim. He has no tolerance for this lying worship. And after a time, finally, the Maccabean revolt happened. And one of the descendants of the great Judas Maccabeus, John Hyrcanus, in the year 102 B.C., smashed the false temple on top of Mount Gerizim. And all the Samaritans had to live with the shame of knowing that their false temple and their false worship couldn't even continue. And yet the Jews still wouldn't let him into their temple. And the hatred continued. And all of this is the backstory for John chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4 in the New Testament, because in this gospel, we will see an encounter that takes place in the shadow of Mount Gerizim between Jesus himself, Yahweh saves, and a woman who's Samaritan. Now, in John chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus was making his way from the northern part of Israel down towards Jerusalem. This is his task. Now, normally, when a good Jew wanted to go from the northern part of the country and get down to Jerusalem, they would go a hundred miles out of their way by crossing the Jordan River, coming way, way south, recrossing the Jordan River, and then coming over. Jesus said, no, we're going to take the straight shot right through Samaria. Wait a minute said the disciples. We can't go through Samaria. Samaria is where the Samaritans are. And we hate the Samaritans. Like, we hate the Samaritans so much that we will avoid it, that James and John, they will threaten to call down thunder in the order of Elijah because people are rude to Jesus there. So much so that Jesus, when he has to shock and awe people, He makes the hero of one of his most famous parables ever, a Samaritan, just to drop everybody's jaw. Wait a minute, a Samaritan is a good guy? Yeah! Impossible! They're horrible! They're half-breeds! They cannot be! And Jesus said, yeah, Jesus never had anything against the Samaritans. Not only does he make a Samaritan the hero of his most famous parable ever, not only does he raise Samaritan people from the dead, not only does he do this, but after he gets raised from the dead, after he's resurrected, he tells the guys, you're going to go preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. Jesus has always wanted the Samaritans, but they did not always want him. And so one day, it was a hot and dusty day, Jesus was walking south. It was getting noon, it was too hot, the disciples decided they went into Sychar, that's the little town that's right next to Mount Gerizim, it's in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, and and during this time of day, the sun was up, and they did not want to be around at all, and so they went into town looking for food, but Jesus, he was on a mission, and he carried on. He wanted to go to the well. You see, Jacob, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, long, long ago, centuries ago, had dug a well there so that he could water his own flock and give water for all his people. And to that day, there was a well in Sychar in the shadow of Mount Gerizim called Jacob's Well. And Jesus went and he sat down on the lip of the well, and he waited. He waited for the guys to go get food. He waited for the sun to continue to beat down upon him, and he waited for the gal he knew was coming, to arrive. She started walking, and she picked this time of day because it was the worst time of day. It was the worst time of day because it was hot, the sun was straight up, and nobody else was around. And so it was perfect for her because she hated to be around other people. She hated their glares. She hated their stares. She hated the shame that always emanated from their eyes and rested upon her. So she picked the time of day that no one else was around to go get the water. You see, the smart person would go in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening and they wouldn't waste their time going in the worst part of the day when the sun is at its highest just to go get a drink. And so she made her way, her daily walk of shame. And then she saw this strange Jewish fellow sitting on the edge. Jesus knew exactly what was coming though. She came up getting ready to get a drink, and Jesus asked her a peculiar question. But it doesn't sound peculiar at first. It sounds innocuous at first. He says, woman, will you give me a drink? And this question, will you give me a drink? It seems like it's perfectly contextual. Jesus is sitting next to the well. She's coming with her pail to fill her water jar. And Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, and I'm a woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 9, the author, John, puts in a little parenthetical document for us, and he says, now the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Like, at all no kidding. And they certainly would not drink from the same cup. Remember back in our storied history, we had colored water fountains and white water fountains, and the two shall not be used by the other? Yeah, the Jews would never take a drink from a Samaritan's jug. A Samaritan would never offer a drink to a Jew. It did not happen. And so now, here's this man asking this woman, this Jew asking this Samaritan for a drink, and we're simply told they did not associate. But we know why. Because she and all those like her try to worship God falsely on the Mount of Blessing filled with lies instead of following the word of God and doing as he prescribes. So Jesus responds, and his response is glorious. Glorious. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus, the name, means Yahweh saves. Jesus is here to save. And if she knew who He really was, it wouldn't have been Him asking her for a drink. She would have begged Him for a drink of living water. And that's what Jesus offers living water. Now this is an allusion to the Holy Spirit, of course, because it's the Holy Spirit who's described as the fire hydrant of power within the Christian life, for he is the wellspring of eternal life that flows forth from us and exudes in every single thing we do. The Holy Spirit is hinted at by Jesus right here, but the woman doesn't understand. Instead, she just says, Sir, how can you get me a drink? You don't have anything to even get. You don't have a pail. You can't even get down there to get a drink. Where are you going to get this living water? Like, are, are, you, are you claiming to be greater than our father Jacob? You know, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, the patriarch, whose name was changed to Israel, the name of our country. Are you saying you can do better than Jacob and his well? And Jesus just sits back and grins for he knows, yeah, I can do a lot better than Jacob and his well. How can this be? So Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, alluding to the Holy Spirit. Again, alluding to this water. Again, alluding to the nature of what God is trying to do. And she doesn't get it. Instead, this woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. And she leaves the last part unspoken in the middle of the day, alone, isolated, because everyone else hates me Jesus takes the conversation which has been tangentially spiritual and he now makes it explicitly so and he gets right to the heart of the matter and he says go get your husband and come back this was a tough question this was a tough request Jesus knew exactly what he was doing but the woman didn't know what Jesus knew and she thought oh gosh this guy doesn't know Um, I have no husband, she stammered, looking up from her sandals, uh, voice quivering, heart pounding, trembling, wondering, does this guy know? It's one thing to have a reputation, but it's another to live up to it. How did this guy know? He's just traveling through. Everyone else knows. How did this guy know? Will I never be free of it? And Jesus interrupts her line of thinking. You're right when you say you have no husband. The truth is you've had five husbands. And the guy you're currently shacking up with is not your husband. Uh, You speak the truth when you say you have no husband. And Jesus puts it right there. You're exactly right. Now this shocks and awes the woman. This strange Jewish visitor with whom she's had no interaction before knows explicit details of her life and she can come to but one conclusion. And she decries, Sir, I can tell that you are a prophet. You must be from God. Our fathers, they worshipped here on this mountain, right here at Gerizim. But you, you Jews claim that the only legitimate place for worship is over in Jerusalem. And Jesus stopped her right there. Believe me, woman, he said to her, A time is coming when we will neither worship at this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not understand or know. But we Jews worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And then Jesus said, yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman started to catch on. And she said, look, I know that someday the Messiah, who some people call the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus looked at her dead in the eye and said, I who speak to you now am He. And Jesus revealed the very nature of who God is and how God will save in the shadow of false worship, all so that He could get to true worship. You want water that will never leave you thirsty? You want water that will well up within you and become the spring leading to eternal life? You want the water that will gush forth power from your life and emanate into everything that you do? Then you must worship rightly. I do not care how sincere or devoted your worship is. If the object of your worship is false, your worship is useless. I do not care how sincerely held your faith is. If you place your faith in that which is false, your faith is futile. It does not matter how sincerely held a belief is that you hold. If you hold a belief that is false, that belief does not serve you. God is spirit and the worshipers that the Father wants must worship in the spirit and in truth. What does it mean to be a worshiper in the spirit and a worshiper in the truth? Jesus declared that he is the truth. I am the truth, Jesus said. And the Spirit is connected to the truth. In fact, Jesus will say in John chapter 14, verse 17, that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And that the world cannot accept him because the world neither knows him nor understands him. But you, you know him, for he lives with you and will live in you. Jesus is foreshadowing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and in John 14 26 Jesus calls this spirit of truth the Holy Spirit the advocate and declare, declares that his job is to teach you all things and to remind you of quote everything I have said to you so yeah the advocate the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who will remind you of everything Jesus said and teach you all things and he will live in you In John 15, 26, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit that the advocate will testify about me and that you also must testify about me. We must learn to listen to the Holy Spirit who testifies from the inside out so that we can go out and testify about Jesus to the world. And in John 16, 13, Jesus describes the spirit of truth and says when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. If you want to worship Yahweh, God Almighty, in the Spirit and in truth, this is what you must know. Your worship must be centered on the person Jesus Christ. We are Christians. Our worship must be centered on the person and nature of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus is Yahweh saves. The way that Yahweh, the God of the universe, wants to save is through Jesus. Everything points to salvation through Jesus. The holiness of God revealed on Mount Ararat points to the holiness of Jesus. The sacrifice on Mount Moriah points to the sacrifice of Christ on Mount Moriah. The burning bush declaring the name Yahweh points to Yahweh saves. The law declared on Mount Sinai never says do this, that, and the other to be saved. It only exists to show you you need to be saved. And those who worship falsely will be consumed by God's wrath. So what must we do? We must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the truth is that God the Father sent God the Son, we call Him Jesus, to be a perfect and sinless sacrifice, to walk upon this earth and to die upon the cross in my place. For I'm the one who deserved to die upon the cross for my sinfulness, but He took my place instead. And as he died and was raised from the dead, if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for our sins, then we will be justified. But in order for this truth to really ring home, you must worship in the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit is to remind you of everything Jesus said and to lead you into the truth, but it's where the Spirit lives that's the most important. Now, sure, the Spirit of Yahweh is the omnipresent one, and He's everywhere. But there's a very specific location that He chooses to dwell and not just to be. He chooses to live in some place very, very specific, and it is not on Mount Gerizim, and it is not in Jerusalem any longer. It's right here. It's right here. The saddest thing to me about our entire trip to Israel, and some of you remember going to Israel, going to Jerusalem, the saddest thing to me was people's obsession with the temple. A building that was ripped down 2,000 years ago that people want to rebuild today. A building that is so controversial that this one tiny spot on this one tiny hill in this one particular city is the most holy place on earth and it's the most hate-filled place on earth. The Muslims control the actual temple ground. The Jews secure, uh, control the security. The Samaritans are saying, you're wrong, it's over here in Gerizim. The Christians want to come in and take pictures of it all. And I just wish I could tell everybody, you're missing it. The Jews who want to rebuild the temple and reestablish God's glory have missed it worship in the spirit and in truth it doesn't have to be there i am the temple to the holy spirit you are the temple of the holy spirit and i know that because god's word says so in 1 corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20 it tells us don't you know that your body is the temple for the holy spirit who is in you whom you received from god you are not your own you were bought with a price Therefore, honor God with your body. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not some building ripped down 2,000 years ago. And the people who obsess about that tiny plot of ground and are willing to fight and go to war and kill because they don't want it rebuilt or they do want it rebuilt or they don't want it rebuilt because their other ruins are the real place, all miss it. Yahweh wants worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And the spirit is in you if you accept the truth. Yahweh saves. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ means that the Holy Spirit indwells you, guaranteeing the justification that God offered is yours. Serving as an inheritance, not just for the sanctification, but the glorification that will be yours upon Lord Jesus' return. Place your faith in Him today and be a worshiper in the Spirit and in truth. It is the most important thing that you can do. And so to help you along with that, here's some specific things I'd like for you to do this week. Would you read two chapters of scripture for me? Would you read Deuteronomy chapter 11 and John 4? When you read Deuteronomy 11, it will call out the curses for Mount Ebal, the blessings for Mount Gerizim, and the importance of following Yahweh's will. And John 4 will explain how Deuteronomy 11 is made perfect. It's made perfect, not by human obedience, but by divine obedience. And by the person, Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law so perfectly. And he can call even those who worship falsely to the truth. He can call even those who railed against him to the truth. I know. Because of what I once was. He came to save even the Samaritans. Even you. Even me. Read all about it. And then I want you to memorize very specifically John 4.24. God is spirit. True worshipers of his must worship in the spirit and in truth. I want you to memorize John 4.24. And then I want you to contemplate and think all week long about your devotion. I want you to think about your devotion to the truth. And I want you to ask the spirit to make your worship more truthful. Your worship has got to be truthful. Your worship is useless if it is not based in truth. Your worship must be focused on the person Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves. That is how God chooses to save. So let your worship of Yahweh be focused through His salvation in the person Jesus. And then this week, worship Yahweh in the Spirit and in truth. And everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it to Yahweh's glory. Do it through the person of Jesus Christ. Do it through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Do it so that the world can see. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's about the people He came to save. He indwells you and me. When we understand that, the wellspring of power really starts to flow out. Would you stand with me as we pray?